0: Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody. It's good to be with you for another week of your favorite mythology, history, philosophy podcast uh, and pop culture, and pop culture where applicable. I uh, wanted to say I've been really thinking a lot about Valentine's Day. Um, one, because it was just Valentine's Day uh, this past week. Two, I'm getting married this year to my lovely co-host, Laurel.
1: Oh, that's me. That's you. Yay.
0: And um, three, it's like, everything's really fucked up right now. Yeah, it sure is. You know, and it's been fucked up for a while, it feels like, where there are no really good news stories anymore. And you really have to, like, reach and find something positive. And traditionally... I have always scoffed at Valentine's Day. I've been cynical about it in that it is a holiday that, you know, it does have its roots back in ancient Rome, you know, thousands of years ago, but it's not the same kind of significant holiday like Christmas, Thanksgiving, 4th of July, these holidays that really mean something to the American, um, you know, collective consciousness, if you'll permit me that, you know, vague and ambiguous term.
1: Yeah, it, there are a lot of reasons to be cynical about it because it's harder to find and forgive my, uh, my use of this term, but it's harder to find the heart in Valentine's Day than it is to find it in Christmas or a, a similar holiday to that.
0: But, you know, currently right now, I'm kind of a, like a fuck all of that. So, yeah, holidays are all inherently commercial they're usually sold to by the powerful to the less powerful or powerless. And they' they serve ulterior motives. All of them do. Of course. You know, Valentine's Day is no different in that it serves its ulterior motives. And so I thought in the chaos and insanity of a corrupt and broken presidential, you know, administration and Donald Trump, in like the onslaught of a uh, a school shooting in which seventeen you know children and adults were gunned down by you know someone with a gun and the sort of impossibility that anything will ever be done to fix this mess called America, it really made me think about two things. One, goddamn, we do need to to pause and celebrate love. And if Valentine's Day is about that, then let us celebrate love because it's the only really good thing we got. And two, are we really as fucked up as we, we think we are and feel? And I think history kind of tells us that we're actually not as fucked up, which segues me into a story that I think uh, both encapsulates what it means to have love and also what it means to have the world falling apart around you. And that would be the 1941 cinema classic, casablanca
1: thank you for that intro i am so so excited to talk about casablanca tonight which is uh, just one of the greatest uh movies ever made and anyone who tells you differently is wrong um,
0: <laughs> And lying. (laughs) Liars.
1: There is no there's no doubt about the fact that Casablanca is not only one of the greatest um, love stories of all time ever put on screen, uh, but it's also one of the most powerful and continually relevant war stories and stories of uh, American politics that you can find. Uh, So I'm very excited to talk about this movie today in the context of us pausing to celebrate love and us pausing to remember who we truly are as a nation.
0: Absolutely, and and no matter how dark it gets, and it's dark, like I'm not trying to pretend that the problems we're facing aren't real um, and aren't uh, seemingly unsurmountable. You know, I think a movie like Casablanca reminds me that we've been a lot darker than we are now and that doesn't alleviate where we're at now but we got through it then and if we can get through it then and come out with a better world it leads me to be hopeful that we can get better now and I think Casablanca ultimately teaches us that love will get us there and that's where I'd like to start this episode with hey let's take a moment about the darkness chaos, and craziness of this current, you know, last year we've lived in under a, I'm just going to say it, openly corrupt, broken, and idiotic presidential administration, Um, and then culminating with this week, a terrible mass atrocity and the outrage we all feel. And for me, I'm going to channel that into this podcast episode and talk about love a little bit.
1: I love it. Uh, as you, as you all know, here on the podcast, we're all about sincerity and sometimes leaning into the cheese. So if that, if that squicks you out, maybe now is not the time, but we love to kind of lean into the positivity and the optimism and the love. And that's why, you know, Casablanca, which is the oldest cliche filled, uh, romance of all time really appeals to us. Should we do a little bit of a recap just for our listeners who haven't seen Casablanca since film school?
0: Sure. I mean, and some of us may maybe listening have never seen it. For the most part, we don't do a lot of classic cinema. So I'm excited for our first time to roll up our sleeves and talk about a piece of film legend. So Casablanca, it came out in 1941. It was directed by... Curtiz. Okay, Curtis. And uh, at the time, it wasn't supposed to be a very popular or very um, amazing movie. They actually pushed up or back the release. I don't remember which. Um, long story short, stars Humphrey Bogart. He plays a man named Rick, who has a cafe in a little town called Casablanca. It is in, in Morocco, in Morocco, in North Africa. And it's during the sort of surge of Nazism in Europe and the, the tidal wave of refugees trying to escape to America. And the route that many took them went through North Africa to Casablanca. And there they were trying to make their way to Lisbon, which was an island, which if they could get there, they could get safe travel to America. And we have this character, Rick, who owns this cafe. And in this cafe, he encounters his ex-lover. His ex lover, Ilse Lund, she walks in with her husband, Victor Laszlo. And um, Rick is sort of dealing with the fact that she she and he were in love. They were in Paris. Paris got taken over by Nazis. He had to leave. She dumped him in a very cruel and cold way by note. That's kind of like the modern way of like ghosting or like breaking up by text. Yeah. Yeah. Like she did, like the worst type of breakup that you could ever possibly do. And um, she kind of strolls back into his life. They all meet. Victor ultimately is the head of the resistance of Slovakia. Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Yes, he calls himself a Slovak. Pardon me. I'm doing a bad job at this recap.
1: You're fine. Oh, thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, Long story short, he and Elsa rekindle their love. They hatch a plot to uh, have uh, Victor escape. At the end of the day, Rick decides that he can't escape with his love, that she has to stay with Victor, and then they kill a Nazi, and then Rick and the French colonial police captain decide they're going to continue to work with the resistance scene.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a simple and and beautiful story about... a a really cynical character in Rick, who's been burned, who's been heartbroken, uh, coming to terms with the reality of the world and throwing away his own cynicism in order to fight the good fight. He's a character who, uh, for, for many reasons, because it's not subtle, it's pretty explicit in the story, has been called a metaphor for American isolationism at the time he becomes this explicit American allegory uh, that takes the shape of all the criticism of the U.S. for not entering the war sooner, even though they were watching all of these horrible atrocities, all of this horrible genocide, and the rest of Europe kind of jump into this melee. Everyone was looking to the U.S. to say, hey, you're this great power. You have this track record of fighting for freedom and fighting for you know goodness and fighting for truth. Uh, when are you going to get into this, but the U.S. was kind of like covering their ears, like I, I'm going to look out for myself, and that's very much what Rick is doing in this movie.
0: Yeah, I think there are a few different layers that we can understand this movie. I think we can understand it first from the allegor allegorical level. Pardon me, of uh, U.S. policy right before um, it enters the war, and Rick as a metaphor of that. I think that's one level that we can understand the movie. I think another layer that we can understand the movie as a film noir uh, about uh, two characters in love, this sort of broken anti-hero man yeah. um, with the toxic relationship with the, mo- with the woman. And I think the other layer that we can understand the movie as a sort of classical romance about two people that, who are in love, who fate would have it, that they will always be within each other's orbits. I think those are the three different ways that we could dissect. Where would you like to begin with this?
1: I would love to start with the word choice that you just uh, that you just introduced when you said that fate would always have them in each other's orbits. Uh, this classic romantic story, which is viewed as one of the greatest romances ever uh, in cinema, uh, that has stuck with us for so so many years, is remarkable because it is an example of the star crossed romance. Uh, it's characters who are, are doomed to be kept apart by circumstance, whose, uh, whose stars have written a fate for them that they will never truly be able to be together, and yet they are constantly thrown into each other's paths, making that even more painful. The idea of the star-crossed lover is not new, and many of the romances that really stick with us, like, say, Romeo and Juliet, where that term is introduced by Shakespeare, but also Jack and Rose from Titanic, Lancelot and Guinevere, Buffy and Angel. Look at the great romances of of human history, of English literature, of cinema, uh, Wuthering Heights, and you'll see great loves that don't work out. And they don't work out because the two cannot truly be together and be happy because their circumstances tear them apart because they're of different classes because they would destroy the realm with their passionate love. And yet they totally consume us, right? Isn't that crazy that our favorite love stories are ones that are tragic?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if that argument is inherent in our nature that it reflects something about us or that, so many of the love stories that end in the happy like the like that fairy tale happy ending are just a little more flippant and trite you know like is what grips us about casablanca and romeo and juliet the fact that it's a love story or the fact that it's a tragedy
1: right same with romeo and juliet we could say
0: and yeah. i would say that it's because it's a tragedy you know like we're gripped by the catharsis that we feel through watching the suffering of these other characters. I think there is a, a psychological element that it helps us all work out our own fears and anxieties and inadequacies in the romantic sphere. And I think in both Romeo and Juliet and Casablanca, the thing they share in common is that there are external forces keeping love from happening.
1: Absolutely. Keeping the love from from flourishing. I wonder if something that keeps us coming back to those stories is despite them being uh, like Romeo and Juliet remounted a million times, despite us having seen Casablanca over and over again, uh, I wonder if there's something about going back to it that we hope there's a different outcome, that we hope someone makes a different choice, that we long for that true uh, resolution of that story and we know we'll never get it. So there's sort of a, a high off of that.
0: I don't know if I, if I, I I personally don't feel that at all,
1: but I also wonder, you know, I also wonder, you know, especially with the case of, of Romeo and Juliet, but with Rick and Elsa as well and their romance, we, we see it in the height of its glory and we do also see it in its rekindling, which is just as passionate and just as painful and just as glorious, but at the end of the day, we don't see these two characters grow old together. We never see them you know, sitting side by side by the fire with their kids. We never see them getting sick. We never see them age. Same thing with Romeo and Juliet. They are cast down, they're, they're stricken down in their youth and beauty in the height of their love, and we never see their love die. We only see their bodies die. So I wonder if there's something about the star-crossed lover, about the romances that don't work out, that we get to preserve this sort of youth and beauty and passion of that love rather than watching the embers kind of fade away. What do you think?
0: Mm, um, that's not a question I was prepared to even grapple with or discuss tonight. So I'd say if we're doing a cross-comparison between Romeo and Juliet and Casablanca, I'd say that is very much true about Romeo and Juliet. That's about children. Yeah. You know, and, and about youth. I think Casablanca is different in the respect that Casablanca is barely about love. You know, That's true. Like, whereas Romeo and Juliet, the entire thing, the entire, like every aspect from the play, from the opening sonnet till the last scene is about these two and their love. The opening scene of Casablanca, you know, the credits is just a, a a a picture of the globe, you know, with credits rolling and then a voiceover saying that like Nazis have taken over half of the world and here's the refugees. And then we see Morocco as a like dirty and scary and threatening place where people are taking advantage of the refugees and people are trying to escape. It isn't until about 40 minutes in, where we get to the romantic scenes, and they're all in flashback. Yeah. So I think, while I think you hit a chord with the Romeo and Juliet analysis, that part of that is encapsulating that in youthfulness, encapsulating that in like a that love can never grow old and become gross. It'll always be young. Yeah. It starts old and gross. In Casablanca. Okay. So I don't think, I think that's true with the one, but I don't know if that's a, if if that's true for the other.
1: I, I think it's a fair comparison though, because in both, obviously you're seeing outside forces and violence and conflict, uh, act upon and destroy this thing that could be a really beautiful love. And at the height, at the climax of Casablanca, when, uh, when Rick is urging Elsa to get on the plane, that's a moment when they love each other more than ever, right? We, we get to see them in that climax of their, their romance. Um, but I think you also said something really interesting in that this movie is, is barely about love. So it's even more fascinating to me that it is considered one of the greatest love stories of all time because the relationship between Rick and Elsa, while being central to the development of their characters, is not necessarily the key focal or the like, key circumstances of the movie. Um. Yeah, it's, a, it's it's much more about the external conflict that is keeping them apart, and that is acting upon Rick's character. It's his story, right? It's his it's his movement from isolationism and selfishness and uh, and narcissism to a, a level of worldliness that he may have had in him all along.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you take the 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 flashback scene. With Rick and Elsa, if you take that out of it, you have so much more time with Rick and the Prefect, and that is really the relationship that shapes the events in the plot. It is is Rick yeah. and the Prefect, not Rick and Elsa. You know, so if we don't get that that like entryway into their past to understand it, this movie is a movie of political intrigue. It's a movie about spies. It's a movie about a broken man in the underworld. Coming sort of out of that underworld uh, to to join the fight, and uh, because we get that little that little detour in the movie linearly, where we get to go into the past and see the relationship that they have, it ends up becoming a movie about love. Because ultimately, what shakes Rick out of his you know apathy, it's the fact that he loves this woman and wants to save her, and that he realizes correctly that there's no future for them, and she is better off with the better man, which is objectively Victor Laszlo.
1: Yeah, he's like the best man ever. Yes. I'd love to just introduce one concept here, uh, and that's that the ancient Greeks had uh, about six words for love, uh, and I'll introduce just a couple of them tonight. There were so many different facets for uh, for that language and for that culture that dealt with the same things that we today c- just put under the umbrella of love. One of those is eros, which is the concept of physical, sexual uh, lust and desire, uh, which obviously Rick and Elsa have. The other one uh, would be philia, which is friendship, uh, deep friendship and camaraderie, which was super important to the ancient Greeks and to many cultures is something that we see in the relationship uh, that develops between Rick and Louie. Uh, Louie's the have, prefect, right? Yes. Okay. We also have, uh, I, pardon me, I don't know the exact pronunciation on this. I'm calling it philatia, which is self love, love of the self, which is often conflated with narcissism, which Rick absolutely is guilty of. He drowns his sorrows in drink every night and just, you know, he refuses to help his friend who's getting taken away by the police who ends up getting killed in his jail cell. And then there's one more, which I think is really key to understanding Rick's transformation through this story, and that's called Agape. And that is sort of a culmination of of all these kinds of love into a love of everything. It is a holistic love for... Th- fellow man love of the earth it is a deeper more uh more essential more down to your core just uh ac- acceptance and love of everything around you and these are all concepts that i think are kicking around in casablanca that expand us out of the love story between the the love triangle between the three people that doesn't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world and expands our focus to the conflict outside, uh, expands Rick's focus from thinking only of himself, only of his friendships, only of his mutual, uh, uh, beneficial, uh, symbiotic relationships, and his uh, and his inner circle, uh, and and expands his view to the rest of the world. And I think that's you know I think that's the direction that this movie really heads is from one to the next.
0: It almost goes through all of those phases of love yeah. to get to agape yeah. at the very end, which is a great uh, transition to what I wanted to talk about. Yay! So I, I was hoping to, it would be. Yeah, I really wanted to talk about the political philosophies articulated in this movie. And I think a few key characters will argue for a particular political philosophy. So I think the easiest one is uh, Rick. Who uh, operates in isolationism? Isolationism is a type of political philosophy underneath the blanket of realism. These are both uh, under the school of thought called international relations. And international relations is political philosophy designed to understand how different nations, states, city-states, groups of people that identify themselves as a people interact with another group of people that identify themselves as a people. Yeah. In fact, in the movie, at one point in the beginning of the movie, Rick is talking to the uh, other club owner or cafe owner, the Blue Parrot, and the club owner is suggesting that they both get into a sort of very high profitable refugee exporting market where they charge people for visas, And Rick's just like, nope, I prefer to go it alone. And he goes, well, isolationism is no actual business strategy. Which brings me to the other characters. Um, The Nazis represent, in general, in the characters and in history, a political philosophy called realism. And now what realism articulates and discusses is the idea that there's a thing called the security dilemma. How do I know my city, my country, my whatever is safe. The only way that I know it's safe is if I know the other person won't attack me. However, there's no actual rule or law of nature that says they can't attack me. So as soon as I perceive that other culture, people, nation, whatever, as powerful, I kind of have to attack them first, otherwise they'll attack me. So the security dilemma it presupposes a few things. One, anarchy, meaning there are no actual laws by which nations should interact. And two, the best way to protect yourself is to attack the other that might attack you. You know, And so this is a philosophy that is actually thousands of years old. It goes back to ancient Greece. It was first written down and articulated by a man named Thucydides. He is, to date, the second historian of ancient Greece. First being Herodotus, second being Thucydides.
1: Good old Thucydides.
0: And he um, wrote the history of the war between Athens and Sparta called the Peloponnesian War. And in it, he wrote down dialogues between Athens and an island called Milos. Now, Milos was a Spartan colony in an island in the Aegean Sea, and Athens and Sparta were at war. Eventually, they just rode up to, uh, you know, Milos, because Athens was a naval power. It was just like, all right, you're either part of our empire or we're going to fucking destroy you. And Milos was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not cool. We're neutral in your war. Have been neutral in your war. We're not helping the Spartans. We're not helping you. You can't just destroy us. In which, and this is according to thucydides what the athens said you know as well as we do that when we are talking on the human plane questions of justice only arise when there is equal power to compel in terms of practicality the dominant act what they can and the weak concede what they must this is a power dynamic that we see played out all over in this movie so we see Louis, the French prefect, sleeping with girls so they can get visas because the only way this pervert can get laid is that if he has his power and the weak do it, they must. We see, um, you know, in the, uh, the other club owner.
1: Senor Fer- Ferrari.
0: Senor yeah. Ferrari, right? in the blue parrot manipulating and making money off of the refugee crisis. And though we have Rick, as an isolationist, which in isolationism, a part of realism that says, if I just stay out of all of it, I'll be cool. Who's the only person that integrates himself into everything and actually does the right thing from the get go? It's Rick. Yeah. Who is it that rigs a roulette game so a young girl doesn't have to prostitute herself that he knows nothing about and has never met, but simply just because he can? It's Rick. At the end, who says goodbye to his true love so that the resistance can fight on? It's Rick. Rick represents the answer to realism in the movie, which is called liberalism, which I know is a hot button word in America, but I don't mean it in the American political paradigm. Liberalism really started after World War I by Woodrow Wilson, who came up with this idea, really simple, if nations got along and talked to each other, there'd be less war. And he started this thing called the League of Nations. And though the League of Nations failed, its second iteration, the United Nations, has been very successful. And in that, we have forged in the post-World War II world a world order that has kept the peace within the global powers ever since. And, you know, that's been a little over, uh, you know, 60, 70 years now. We've kept the peace through the liberal international order. So don't think of liberal as oh my God, This is these are the liberals on Fox News. No, liberal as in that is the society and international order that we right, have. Right, right. And Rick, as the American, represents the liberalism as the answer to the realism. And I think those political philosophies are at play. Now, Victor Laszlo, as a freedom fighter, also is representing liberalism, right? He's also representing the idea of interconnection international communication, uh, harmony, and even the prefect who is an opportunist is also someone that's just like, well, I'm an opportunist, but at the end of the day, he chooses liberalism. All of the heroes of this story, they choose liberalism over realism as their political philosophy.
1: Yeah, that's I mean that's an amazing breakdown of of the political philosophies that are at work here. And Casablanca just as a city is so interesting in this movie because it's a it's a petri dish, right? Because it's a purgatory. Uh it's where people are dumped on their way to another place. It's marginal, it's liminal, it's in between. It's nobody's home, but everyone is stuck there for an indefinite amount of time. So the options that they have are to like Rick, try and carve out a little bit of home in Rick's Cafe American, uh, Rick's American Cafe that looks like it's America. And you've got Sam at the piano playing good old American jazz tunes. You can do that. Or you can try and, you know, pickpocket a couple of rich people as they're heading to the plane with their visas. Uh, You can warn them about all of the, all of the cutthroats and all of the uh, just vultures around there while you're also pulling their wallet out of their back pocket. Or you could be Louie and you could, uh, you know, just rub your sleaziness all over your sleazy sleaze and use your position of power to take advantage of young women. There is this just incredibly uh, sort of uncomfortable and sort of gross mishmash of all of these political philosophies that never would have encountered one another in uh in their typical polite societies, but thrown into this place that is, you know, just ignited by desperation of the general public, you get this really interesting, uh, relationship and melting pot thereof.
0: Yeah. And I think it's important to note that Morocco at this time in history and in this movie is a French colony and colonialization is a manifestation of political realist international ideologies. Yeah, absolutely. Where I'm going to go to this other nation and I'm going to conquer it and I'm going to remake it in the image of my nation because I can and no one can stop me. So, you know, and I think it's important that that's where this is and that we are seeing the sort of, uh, in Casablanca and in our own history, the culmination of political realist, you know, Uh, military and international philosophies combined with mechanized warfare, and we get the worst combat that ever has been fought and ever will, hopefully ever will be fought on the planet in World War II. And the one thing that I'd like to add is that uh, we are currently in the midst of major philosophical debates about international relations today. This is happening in France, Germany. It's happening in England and America. And there are voices that aren't saying, I'm arguing for international realism, but that's what they're arguing. And they're arguing for a philosophy of might equals right. I look out for my own. There are no rules. You know, a perfect example of this philosophy articulated was the interview in which Donald Trump was asked, do you think there's a moral equivalency between Russia killing people and America killing people? And he said, no, there's no, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he's just like, we've done fucked up things too. He is arguing for the idea of a political realist philosophy. And you know, I think we do need to ask ourselves in the wake of all this insanity, is that really the philosophy that we want? Do we really want to use our power and might to say you know what nazis had a point we'll either conquer you or let you go those are the only two options and i don't know if i particularly l- feel comfortable in this resurgence of of america first you know instead of hey didn't we all fight this big war to have this international world in which we all talk and you know work together
1: Yeah. Um, One of the key questions when watching Casablanca, one of the things that you agonize over as a film student, that I agonized over as a film student, is the question of Rick as a character. Does he change? Is he a character who undergoes a major transformation? Or is he a character who was really good all along, who was really fighting for the right thing all along and just had to have that unlocked? Uh, and this question, when expanded in, in scope, when looked at as the allegory for the American foreign policy, becomes even more interesting here. Uh, when we talk about America's role in World War II, it can be a little depressing to think about the fact that it took us so long to get in that war despite what we were seeing. And despite our power and the fact that you know this international conflict is happening, in Europe with our allies where there's not really a strong leader on the allied forces side. And this gets into a whole, uh, a whole other political philosophical debate of whether just because you have power, should you jump into every international conflict? And I don't truly know the answer to that, but I think Rick is an interesting vessel uh, in this movie for us to explore kind of what is our, obligation to really jump in and help others and be proactive.
0: I think to go to your first question, does Rick change? I would like to argue uh, that yes, he does. I think anyone who is at the edge of, you know, the world, you know, where Rick is at in, in Casablanca and in a gin joint that he owns, when someone asks him, you know, what do you do? I'm a drunkard and at the end makes a sacrifice where he gives up his true love to fight a cause has gone through a change. You yeah. Know, I think the question is, is that in the the movie, the, there is plenty of evidence that Rick was always on the right side of the fight until his heart got broken and it took some time for his heart to mend. But speaking of someone who's had his heart broken, you know, you come out changed even when it mends. And I think Rick definitely changes in this movie.
1: Yeah, but it's it's such an interesting question of, uh, you know, is this movie in some ways trying to tell us that, yes, of course America was on the right side all along. It just needed something like Pearl Harbor to jettison it into the future. Uh, kind of what is the what is the message of Rick as this American allegory who always fought for the right things, but somehow... Uh, got lost on the way to solving this big international problem.
0: Well, as a history student, I would say you can't prove a thing that didn't happen. Of course. However, counterfactual reasoning proves a historical point where a good historian could argue a thing that didn't happen as a way to prove the importance of the thing that did. If that sounds confusing, it's probably because I just spoke in riddles. It is. It's saying, hey, what if... uh, instead of George Washington being for America and for the revolution, if he was for the British? What would that world look like? And if we say that world is radically different, somewhat different or the same, in that argument, we could understand the importance of George Washington, right? And so that would be counterfactual reasoning, trying to argue a thing that didn't happen to prove the importance of a thing that did. I think if we apply that sort of, thought experiment to America and World War II, it's really, really difficult because if America haphazardly enters into a conflict, a conflict without the full support of its people, right? this is America that doesn't have the standing military that we have today. What does that mean? America didn't have much of an army, navy, or air force. America's traditional military style was to fight a war, and then disband all of your military. Right. And so, between World War I and before World War II started, America had very little military. So, in order for America to be successful, it would need people to volunteer and to join. In order to have people to volunteer and join, they needed to believe. And they just didn't believe in fighting this war. Right. So, it's hard to think of a world without a Pearl Harbor where America joins with the uh, enthusiasm in which it joins World War II. So I would say that, you know, I think the ring moral lesson is if you're going to be a leader of the world, you must be a leader of the world. If you're going to not be a leader of the world, you can't also be a leader of the world. Like those are mutually exclusive. We're either going to be leading and defending and fighting for our allies. marching first into battle. Or not. And I think the lesson that we learned after World War II is like, hey, the world is better in America's hands. Now, whether or not that's true or not, whether we did a good job with that or not, all things that we could debate and all things that have, uh, you know, America's done really horrible things as a leader of the free world and really great things. What is happening right now But America is saying, if you're not within our direct national interest, then fuck you. And that's where we're at now. And I I think that is more dangerous than saying, yeah, yeah, go France, go Britain. Oh, there's no more France because the Nazis took it over. Guys, do we really want to fight another European war? Is a more understandable position, not necessarily a morally, like one that I morally argue for. Um, than where we're at now, which is like, yeah, world, fuck you.
1: America first. Yeah. And that's, I, I think, key. And that's where I'm going to tie this uh, you know, back into those forms of love and where I'm going to bring back this idea of Casablanca as an in-between place. It's a French colony, as we know, but it's inhabited by English, by Americans, by, of course, Natives of Morocco, by Germans, by people from all over Europe and Africa and and everywhere in the world and the U.S. And because of that and because they are all in contact with one another and they are able to encounter each other's political philosophies and encounter each other's day-to-day desperation and pain and struggle, I think even though there are some horrible characters who pop up and take power in this land there's something beneficial about being forced together. In, their, in a really key scene, we see a lot of the uh, you know, German uh, uh, visitors of Casablanca singing a German anthem. And Victor Laszlo, the Czechoslovak freedom fighter, uh, who has been running all around the European countryside from the Nazis, who has been everywhere, but knows that he is a Czechoslovak national, uh, jumps up and leads the band, in the Marseillaise, which is the French national anthem, which we hear several times repeated as a musical theme uh, throughout the movie. And everyone in the bar, uh, no matter whether they are French, German, American, or otherwise, starts to sing the Marseillaise to drown out the Nazis, to drown out the Germans. And there is something... Uh, they're all full of such passion for this anthem of a country they may not belong to, because they know that they align with the with the oppression. They align with the oppressed, and they are willing to stand up and sing for another country's national anthem because they experience that agape that we talked about—that love of mankind and that longing for all mankind to be valued.
0: Yeah, I'm right with you on that. I think that's one of the amazing moments of the movie. And I think it's also a moment where we can reflect on what censorship means when the Nazi uh, major says, shut down the bar. Yeah. Simply because people sung a French song louder than a German song and the bar gets shut down and the 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 just absolute violence of, of shutting down free speech and the ability for people to go to a bar and sing the song they want to sing.
1: Because that love, that love of country and that love of cause and that love of, of humankind is a threat to their idea of what the world order is going to be. And that I think is why, Casablanca truly is one of the great love stories of all time. It's not just because of the the romantic, the sexual love between Rick and Ilsa, which I think is key to Rick's transformation. It's key to bringing Rick out uh, out of his slump, is remembering why he loved Ilsa to begin with and why he loved the rest of the world to begin with. But I think that Casablanca, like we said, moves through, through Rick, those different forms of love from self-love into romantic love, into friendship, into love of all mankind. I think Casablanca is one of the greatest love stories because every character that we grow to uh, connect with in that, in that movie really does feel that agape in the end.
0: Holy shit. I'd say drop the mics. Boom. But they're on stands. I think that is a fantastic analysis and one that I, I think is no better place to for for me to end, not necessarily cutting the podcast over, but just to end this historical discussion, that the idea that the end result of all love is to love all mankind and to love all of us. And once you have that, the, the potential and power that it unlocks, and to me, it also reminds myself that like, in this movie, the romantic love of two people is inconsequential and meaningless. And, you know, the, the famous line, you know, the problems of three people don't amount to a hill of beans. Exactly. And it reminds me that no matter how dark things are and crazy things are and how much you have heard me in this podcast rail against the current administration, you know, we have to remind ourselves that Man, we do live in a time that is very privileged and very amazing, and I have to be reminded that, like, the fact that I get to sit here across, you know, my my podcast studio desk with the woman I'm going to marry and spend the rest of my life with—I mean, that is the thing that I, Valentine's Day is all about: the fact that I get this privilege to have love in my life. And a true love and to be able to feel it completely uninterrupted without Nazis, you know, trying to kill me is pretty fucking amazing.
1: It is pretty fucking amazing. You know, it's when you hear a line like the problems of three people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Uh, you have to ask in times of oppression, in times of struggle, in times of pain, what is the value of romantic love? What does it do for us? Does it do anything? Is it just a distraction? And it can be easy to say, yes, it is. And there's a way to read Casablanca as, yeah, the romantic love between Rick and Ilsa was insignificant uh, next to the greater story that was happening alongside it. But at the end of the day, while romantic love was what broke Rick, was what destroyed him, was what drew him away from the cause, it was also transformative. It is also what brought him out of the pain, what brought him out of the slump. And it brought him from a place of caring only for himself, of course, to caring for the well-being of others. And uh, you know, the, the difference between Eros, the romantic love, and Agape uh, is something that he... He has to learn from Victor Laszlo, right? That if you, if you say you love someone and it's just a passionate desire and you want to be with them all the time, that's amazing, that's great. You have fun with that. But Victor Laszlo is willing to uh, sacrifice everything for Ilsa's well-being uh, and is, is willing to even give her up if that will make her happy. And Rick sees that and understands that that's the true meaning of romantic love. That's the true meaning of love for the world, and that's what transforms him. And so I think we learn that the value of of love in all those kinds is tremendous.
0: Drop the mic, but they're on stands. <laughs> I uh, I completely one hundred percent agree, and I think uh, I think. The the fun of the what we get to do is that we get to watch movies and think about this shit and come out here and share it with you. Our amazing and fantastic and the best podcast listeners um, out there listening to podcasts are here with us on the Midnight Myth.
1: I would love to close with just a couple of lines from the uh, you know the classic song from Casablanca, uh, as time goes by, lines that I think are uh, essential to what we've been talking about tonight. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by.
0: And uh, people want to reach us, Laurel. Are gonna, how are they going to reach us?
1: Oh, my God. We would love to hear from you. If you have thoughts about our discussion of Casablanca, our discussion of foreign policy, because we're great political scientists here on The Midnight Myth, uh, please reach out if you have any. Uh,
0: were you undercutting my political science? No, I'm kidding. I think
1: you were great.
0: Uh, (laughs) I'm totally kidding. If you
1: have any suggestions about future episodes, anything you'd like us to check out, uh, or any comments or questions about what you've heard heard on the podcast, please uh, let us know. You can reach us at our website, www.midnightmyth.com. There's a contact form there. Uh, Or you can tweet us at The Midnight Myth on the Twitters. You can visit us on Facebook, search The Midnight Myth Podcast, or check us out on Instagram, at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, If you are so inclined and if you enjoy what you've been hearing, please head over to Apple Podcasts. If you haven't hit subscribe yet, hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating or a review. It really helps us get out there. And just tell your friends that you love this podcast so that uh, we can expand the Midnight Myth community.
0: And until next time, guys, be kind. Play it Sam.